if we if we if as we have been going through Galatians so far, you're starting to feel like so, Pastor, if you're taking away the law from us as a as a guide for how we should live, then what are we supposed to do to be godly? Tell us what we have to do to know that we're godly. And if you're starting to feel like that, good. Because that's where I want you to be right now. I'm, I'm trying to carve away the law, get you to understand that the law is not where we go to know how we should live or what we should pursue in order to be godly but something else. But we're not going to get to that for a while. We're not going to get that to that today. Uh, we're going to continue looking at um, Paul's defense of the gospel that he preaches. And that is continued here in verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2. I invite you to follow along as I read these few verses aloud. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Remember, Cephas is Peter. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. So I was thinking about what's happening here in these verses and just life in general. It just, the reality sunk in again of the conflict and division and the broken relationships that are just part of our daily lives. And they happen in so many areas of our lives that the problem seems inescapable. You just can't get away from it. Uh, I'm sure that you're all aware of the stuff going on in our nation's capital over the last few months, uh, the impeachment hearings and the trial going on there. I've been on this earth long enough, which is another way of saying I'm stinking old, but I'm old enough to have been alive through the administration of 11 presidents. There's a few of you who have been around that long as well kind of a scary thought, but it's just the truth. But in all of that time, I have never seen the division and animosity that I've seen over the last three years. I was even alive during the Nixon years and was aware of that as an early teen. And, um, and I never even saw it then. And it was pretty nasty back then, but it never reached the level where it is now. And I suppose that there have always been battles behind closed doors and some of the reading I've been doing recently in relation to the history of some of the big stuff that's happened in the country, um, I, it's been true. 
Um, there have been some really nasty things that went on behind closed doors, but now it just seems like there's a poison spilling out into our society that sometimes it's just beyond belief, the stuff that we hear and the stuff that we see. And sometimes, it's not sometimes, it's just sad how, it, how that how that spilling out is infecting and producing those same levels of animosity at every stratus or, or layer of our society. I remember as a kid, and I don't sit around and look at the seal of the United States very much, but uh, we were taught when I was a kid in the school I went to about the about the seal of the United States and what everything represented. And on the seal, it says, E pluribus unum, which means out of the many, one. And honestly, these days, it just seems like that's a bit pie in the sky. Because right now, it's kind of like out of the many, many. Everybody's got their thing and their agenda that they're doing. And I've also been realizing how it seems that our society as a whole is returning to the 60s and 70s. Again, I I was a kid in the 60s, and so I really wasn't aware uh, of what was going on. I've come to the reality that my parents really shielded me a lot from what was going on in the big world around me. Um, uh, I guess we just didn't watch the news that much, and they didn't talk about it in the house of what was happening. But again, as I've been reading the bombings that were going on in the late 60s and early 70s, and some of you really are aware of all that stuff. Um, I've often thought that if anarchy broke out in the United States, probably Iowa would be a pretty quiet place because we're, we're Iowa nice, you know, Midwest nice stuff. But as I was reading, um, I saw how there was a bombing in Des Moines back in those days and a bombing in Ames back in those days. And Racine, Wisconsin, and Milwaukee, Wisconsin, there were bombings. So that, that's where I was born, was in, was in Milwaukee, and we lived right next to Racine. Uh, that was a year after we moved to Colorado, which I didn't realize. But in the 70s, um, it got really nasty. But, it, but today, the anarchists are re- reasserting themselves. And they're doing those kind of things again. And violent protests are breaking out. And a lot of the social mores that were challenged back in the 60s and 70s that have expanded beyond now and are being challenged in even greater ways today. And we would like to think that that all exists out there somewhere. You know, it's all, it's all bad stuff out there. But church is just the place to be. We don't have those problems in the churches. We would like to think and we would like to hope that things are different in the churches, but even in the church, conflict exists. This past week, as Terry and I were taking our lunch date at church, we were at Chick-fil-A. Everybody knows that's just an, a, a parachurch ministry out there, right? But we were doing our weekly lunch date at Chick-fil-A. There was someone at a table next to us who was actually a teenager, I wasn't an adult. I was kind of surprised at the level of conversation for two teenagers um, because when I was a teenager, I never talked this way, but they were, she was talking about a level of conflict that was occurring in her church. 
And I don't know what church it was. I wasn't, you know, I didn't go over and sit down and say, can I just listen in on this and hear what you got to say? I was just picking up bits and pieces and my hearing is not so great anyway. I don't know what church it was. I don't know exactly what the problem was. But this person did make the comment that it's just sad what is happening. I thought that was pretty mature for for a uh, for a teenager, because again, I wasn't this way, but for a teenager to be perceptive that what is going on is sad. And they weren't, they weren't really good taking sides. They were just saying, this is what's happening, and they were trying to process it. And the reality is that in the places where there should be refuge from conflict, where unity should prevail, where love is to be the defining mark of Jesus' followers. These followers of Jesus, as James says, bite and devour one another. Church growth used to be defined by how many people came to know Christ from being an unbeliever to a believer and then were baptized and discipled in the church. That's how church growth used to be defined. It's sad to me when we begin to celebrate, which at a BCI meeting a few years ago, they were celebrating one of the fastest growing churches in the state. And that church is one of the fastest growing churches in the state because people are leaving other churches to go to it. It's sad to me when we celebrate that kind of thing. But beyond the transfer of membership from one church to another, even worse are the numbers of people just leaving church altogether. When I started looking into this, I was was stunned. And they're defining church loosely in this um, research study that was done. So it isn't limited to evangelical churches or Baptist churches or anything like that. But according to this source, over 3,500 people a day, a day, leave the church. So let that sink in. And they're not leaving a church to go to another church. They're leaving, period. During that same time, 1,500 pastors left the church that they pastored each month. 1,500 a month left the church that they were pastoring. And over 1,300 pastors were terminated each month, fired without cause. A month. Those numbers should make you say, Something's really, really wrong. And while all of that is happening, over 4,000 new churches begin each year in the United States. But over 7,000 close. Seems like just driving around Cedar Rapids, you're always finding a new little church popping up somewhere 
And the pain and damage caused by all this is really immeasurable. Emotionally, physically, and most importantly, spiritually. As I've thought about that young lady sitting in Chick-fil-A, commenting on what she's seeing is just sad. I wonder what her future is. If she can't see peace and stability and love in the body of Christ, where is she going to find it and where is she going to be as a young adult? She seems like a good kid. But it's going to affect her emotionally and physically and spiritually. And I would like to say that all of this is kind of new and unique to the church today, but we know it's not. You realize that there's over a hundred different kinds of Baptists out there in the United States? Over a hundred different kinds. And there's like three peas in a pod Baptists. Seriously. There's a group of Baptists that call themselves three peas in a pod. There's all kinds of strange groups out there because of conflict and division and biting and devouring. In fact, it's so not new and so not unique to our church culture today that as early as the mid-40s, and I don't mean the 1940s, I mean the 40s, like 40, 41, 42, 43, 44, 10 to 15 years after Jesus died. That early, his followers were breaking into factions. That's what we see in the letter to the Galatian churches. And I, as I was thinking about this this week, I, I thought, I wonder if some of them who had been around since the beginning, you know, from the, from the first message of Pentecost, If some of them would sit around and look at each other and say, remember the good old days? Remember back 10, 15 years ago when thousands were coming to know Jesus? When when there were, were these thousands being baptized and local churches were popping up all over the place and they were all on the same page no matter where they were? All those people who went out from Pentecost that went back to their cities in Antioch and Rome and all those places and they were so excited about the gospel and they went back and they shared the gospel with the people there and no matter where you went in those early days, it was just like they were all the same. And people welcomed each other and people loved each other. Remember remember when... We used to get together every day to eat together and and share the Lord's table together and we were learning together and we were encouraging one another and we were sharing our possessions with each other. Remember those early days? Remember when that, that guy that sold his stuff and lied about it? Remember when he was like an anomaly? He he was just stuck out because he was the only one who was doing something like that? Things were great. 
And what happened to all that unity and love and goodwill? Uh, I know what it was. I know what it was. It was those pesky Gentiles. It was all good until those Gentiles came in. We were all on the same page. Everybody was getting circumcised. Everybody was going to the synagogue for Sabbath. And on Sunday we would go get together as well. And then those Gentiles came along. Remember how Peter allowed that Cornelius guy to trust Jesus without being circumcised? That was the moment it all started to fall apart. Peter. Peter messed it all up. And now, because of those Gentiles, factions and division and fighting and exclusion and conformity. Everybody's got their own thing going on. First church of the circumcision. We are right. And then there's the first church of the uncircumcision. We are right. But you know what the real cause of the division was? It wasn't circumcision. The real cause of the division in the early church was that some had chosen to move away from a pure gospel of Jesus alone to a gospel-like message of Jesus plus. It wasn't the Gentiles. It wasn't ethnic differences. It wasn't circumcision that was the root of the problem. It was a gospel-like message of Jesus plus. And that's what's driving this letter to the Galatians. And the verses we have just read, where Paul confronts Peter, illustrate the problem. As we've been looking at this over the last couple of weeks, I've been trying to point out to you that Paul's argument has been to the Galatians that his gospel is not sourced in human wisdom. And his gospel is not subject to human authority. He is not preaching what he is preaching because of the pressure of anyone. And he is not preaching what he is preaching because he had some hallucinogenic moment where he came up with this new theology and this new doctrine. Instead, he's been seeking to prove and defend that his gospel came from Jesus himself. And his loyalty is going to be to Jesus. And there's no human being to whom he's going to bow and give up the true gospel in order to please them or to advance his career. He will only preach the message of Jesus Christ. And so we learn of how he even travels to Jerusalem. He takes Barnabas with him. And he goes there not to get the good housekeeping seal of approval from the apostles in relation to his message. He's not going there to get credentials from them or certification from them. He's going there actually to make sure that what they're teaching does not undermine his gospel. 
to make sure that as he goes out and establishes churches, he's not running in vain establishing churches and then people are going to come behind him with a different message. He doesn't want the apostles coming in and corrupting what he is establishing in the name of Jesus Christ. And as part of the proof of that, he tells us of his confrontation with Peter and his correction of Peter when Peter is at the church of Antioch. Peter's traveled to visit the church in Antioch. And it's the place where the believers are first called Christians. I think it's so ironic that this is the place of the confrontation. Jesus says, By this shall all men know that you're my disciples, if you have love one for another. Not for the whole world. But they will know that you are my followers because there will be a unique mark with you that the rest of the world doesn't have. People will see the love that you have for one another. And people will begin to say, they must be followers of Jesus. I may have shared this with you. When I, when I was uh, at the college and we attended a church in the area, Grace Baptist, I was teaching through, I believe it was First John at that time, and on that particular Sunday, I asked them to take out a piece of paper. It was a Sunday afternoon. I had the afternoon uh, service teaching time. And by the way, we were criticized because we had a Sunday afternoon instead of a Sunday evening. There were churches that were very upset with us because we had compromised to attract people by having a Sunday afternoon service instead of a Sunday evening service. The only reason we were doing that was because people were driving long distances with young kids. And when we explained that, oh, so you're making church convenient for people. It's just like, give me a break. But when the Super Bowl, when it was Super Bowl Sunday, guess who was attending our Sunday services? Yeah, talk about convenience. But at any rate, this particular Sunday, I was going to speak on holiness. You know, actually it was in First Peter and I was talking about be holy as, as your Father in heaven is holy. And so I asked them, I said, I said, we're going to talk about holiness today. Take out a piece of paper and, a, and something to write with, if you would. And I'd like you to think about and write down the defining mark of Christians. What makes Christians unique? What allows the world to see that we are followers of Jesus? And I knew it was going to happen because of the circles I'm, I was moving in at that time. And so I said, just take a piece of paper once you're done and set it aside and, now we're, and then we'll get into this. And we went into First Peter and then I took them to John. And then we got to that passage and I said, before I read these verses, I'd like to know what you have on your pieces of paper if you'd be willing to volunteer. What is the mark of a Christian? What is the unique mark of a Christian that makes them stand out in the world in which they live and move. And I got all of the, you know, way we dress, the things we don't do, we don't go to this, we don't do that. I said, okay, now let's look at what John says, Jesus said. By this 
this defining mark, all men will know that you're my followers, that you have love one for another. Really wasn't very fair because I, I kind of did set them up because I knew what they were generally going to say. But I find it very ironic that in the first church where the world was identifying them and actually calling them Christians, followers of Jesus. That was the first, it wasn't a name they came up with themselves. It wasn't a name that they used for themselves. It was the name that the unbelievers gave to them saying, they're those followers of Jesus, they're Christians. It's in that church that there's so much conflict that the one leader of the church has to confront the other leader of the church for his hypocrisy and his destruction of the one mark that defines the followers of Jesus. So Paul is in Antioch and Peter arrives in Antioch Paul and Barnabas had spent a year teaching these new Christians what it meant to be followers of Jesus. We find that in Acts, I believe it's chapter 11. And Peter, we're told, has been here and has been enjoying the fellowship present in this place where Jesus has transformed lives, where he's brought ethnic reconciliation. Jews and Gentiles are eating together sharing their food, sharing their homes. You know, in that time, (coughs) Jews, an observant Jew, was not supposed to go even into the house of a Gentile. He was not to sit down at the table of a Gentile. He was not to eat from Gentile utensils because Gentiles were unclean. So when Peter went to Cornelius' house and he went into Cornelius' house, it was bad enough. But to not demand circumcision before he baptized them was even worse. But here is this, this situation happening where Peter has been repeatedly sitting down with the Gentiles and eating with them. And the other Jews in Antioch who are believers are sitting down with the Gentile believers and eating with them because they love each other, because they understand that they are all one in Christ. And then Peter gets word that some guys are coming from Jerusalem. Guys from James. Now, we don't know what their mission was in coming. All we know is that certain men came from James. That's all we're told. We, we have a tendency to assume that these guys were of the circumcision group. But we don't know. And this James is the brother, half-brother of Jesus. And we're told, though, that he was eating with the Gentiles, but when these men came from James, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Because of that statement, there's quite a few people who believe that there was confusion over this in Jerusalem. And James may have actually been part of the circumcision party, and that 
these men were coming specifically to find out if what Peter was doing was real. If that's true, it would explain why Paul later went to Jerusalem to find out what was going on in Jerusalem and what was being taught. These stories are not here in chronological order. This story actually precedes the story at the beginning of chapter 2. But out of fear, we're told, out of fear of the circumcision party, the Judaizers, what he was fearing, we don't know. Maybe it was lost reputation. Maybe it would be lost standing. Maybe it would be lost friends. We, we know, we know Peter has a problem with this. We know Peter has a problem with fear. We know Peter has a problem with, with the fear of loss over identification with another. Remember, he's the guy who said that he would never deny Christ. And what did he do three times? He denied him three times out of fear. And like all of us who struggle in certain areas, as long as we are on this side of the grave, we struggle with those certain areas. And here's Peter. Out of fear, he suddenly chooses to abandon the gospel of Jesus and causes division in this local assembly of believers. He abandons the gospel of Jesus that breaks down the walls and brings reconciliation. And he chooses to separate from the Gentiles. And this word draw back even implies a shunning of sorts. It wasn't that Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles, but actually there seems to be a level of, eh, they're not circumcised. And he starts talking out of the other side of his mouth. Oh, when he's with the, before the circumcision party came, the Gentiles were great. And eating with them was great. And eating their food was great. You say, well, maybe Peter was confused. No, he was not confused. This is the guy who got the vision, who was told by Jesus, don't call unclean what I call clean. And in case you don't understand, Peter, don't call unclean what I call unclean. And by the way, go to Cornelius. This is the guy who says, when Cornelius accepts Christ, I can see that their God is no respecter of persons in reference to the fact that he's an uncircumcised Gentile. This is the guy who defended to other people that the Gentiles did not have to be circumcised to be saved. And now, out of fear, he's withdrawing from them. He's he's beginning to shun them. What's even worse is his actions influence the Jewish believers. But when these men came, 
Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. That's a, that's a pretty strong word. That's one of the worst words we could use with somebody in the church today to call them a hypocrite. And it was a rough word back then to call somebody a hypocrite. But the Jews saw what Peter did and they said, ah, yeah, maybe, maybe it's best. He influenced them. His standing influenced them to do the same thing. To separate themselves from the Gentiles. And as if that wasn't bad enough. If inflaming in the Jews long-held prejudices against the Gentiles wasn't bad enough, we're told by Paul that even Barnabas was led astray by Peter's actions. Even Barnabas. Paul's right-hand guy. The guy who had mentored Paul and then become actually under Paul, traveling with Paul. Seeing the Gentiles come to know Christ. Seeing the transformation in the Gentiles. Understanding that circumcision was not necessary. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas started siding with the Jews against the Gentiles. Barnabas was referred to by Luke in Acts as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And now, Paul writing a letter to the Galatians says that Barnabas, a good man full of the Holy Spirit, is a hypocrite. I want you to consider for a moment that these Gentiles who are being shunned by Barnabas, probably many of them were led to Christ by Barnabas and had been close friends with Barnabas, the encourager, the master discipler. And now Barnabas is choosing break relationships, damage relationships because of hypocrisy. Peter, out of fear, chose sin. And the fires of division begin to rage in Antioch at the place where they were first called Christians. And now we have people wounded and lives damaged The unique mark of believers is lost simply because of an adjusted gospel, Jesus plus. The people inside the church of Antioch are acting just like the people outside the church of Antioch. So how does a person help in this kind of situation where sinful behavior has produced division. I believe Paul's example is helpful. 
The first thing that Paul does is he goes to Peter publicly. Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on the wall of this one? Publicly. He doesn't go to Peter and say, hey, can we get together for coffee next week? And uh, there's a little place down the road here that has really good coffee and maybe we can do breakfast and we can talk through this. And sits down with Peter and says, Peter, you're being a hypocrite. I don't want to embarrass you. I don't want to make a big deal out of this, but you're being a hypocrite and you need to deal with it. He doesn't do that. He goes to Peter publicly and in front of them all, it says in verse 14, when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, to Peter, before them all. This had to be a fun church meeting. Family, dirty laundry out there in front of everybody. In front of all of them, he confronts them. You know, some might question why Paul didn't follow the teaching of Jesus found in the Gospel of Matthew. Why didn't he go to Peter one-on-one privately and say, Peter, you need to repent. You're acting hypocritically. You're living out a Gospel that is Jesus plus No, you're not preaching Jesus plus, but you're living Jesus plus. And because you're living Jesus plus, all of these people are now living Jesus plus, including Barnabas. Why didn't he do that? Because in Matthew, when Jesus teaches on that, the person is to go privately because the sin is private. If you find a brother... If you know of a brother. And at this point, the sin is very limited in its knowledge. And so you go privately to the person and call them to repentance. And if they, if they respond to repentance, what happens? It's done. If they repent of the sin and they move forward, it stops there. Because the goal is repentance. Repentance. I I would think that that brother who confronted the sin is going to walk with the brother who was in the sin and help him move forward. But it's a private sin. It's allowed to stay private. The sin in Matthew 18 only becomes public if the sinning brother refuses to repent after several private confrontations. Then it goes public. But here, Paul goes public immediately. Why? I think the best answer is found in the fact that Peter's sin was already public. It wasn't a private sin. It was a public sin. And it had already influenced the behavior of everyone around him. He had already produced the division. His sin had already led others astray into that same sin. So Paul has to confront this sin publicly in order to make it clear not just to Peter, but to everyone who's following him how hypocritical they are. 
how they have been living like Gentiles themselves. One, one of the experts on the culture, which I don't know if he's correct or not, but he's well respected. He says that in, in their culture with the Jew, if you drank from a, from a Gentile cup, it wasn't just that you were defiled, but you were now considered a Gentile along with the Gentile from whose cup you drank. And as a good Jew, as, a, as an observant Jew, you were going to have to go through a lot of stuff, but, but the fact that you willingly drank from a Gentile's cup puts you in the category of a Gentile. You're unclean like they are. It makes sense in relation to, to what's going on here. Because in a sense, eating someone else's food, sitting down at someone else's table and eating with someone else's food, eating someone else's food that's given to you and eating off their plates and drinking from their cups communicates at least the desire for oneness, if not proclaiming already that there is a oneness. You've got Super Bowl parties going on tonight. Let's say your family invites over another family. And, and they say, what should we bring? And you say, don't bring anything. Don't worry about it. And they show up with their own plates and their own silverware and their own drinking cups and their own food and their own table. And they set it all up in your house and they start eating. And your feeling is going to be, Offended. Because you invited them over to share with you in commonness. And they've come over to communicate, you're not good enough. You're not clean enough. We don't like your food. You can't cook. Whatever it communicates to you, it's going to be an offensive thing. But for Peter to sit down with Gentiles and eat their food from their serving dishes and drink from their cups and sit at their table and communicate with them and call them Christians is to say, I am one with you. I take on your identity. I am one with you, not because of our ethnicity and not because of our social status, not because of anything, but because we are one in Jesus. And then when others come that you fear, you step away and say, I am not one with you. Actually, you are different. You are not part of this. In fact, because you're not circumcised, you may not even be a believer. After identifying with Gentiles, in a sense, as a Gentile in that culture, now he's stepping back and saying, I'm something different from you. I am a Jew. I am one of God's people. And it's public. 
His hypocritical choice, the result of fear, was not in step with the gospel and was corrupting the very foundation of the church. And in this situation, the only way to correct the public problem was with the public confrontation. I think Paul's example is important in another way. Not only did he confront publicly, but how he responds to a corrupted gospel, I think, is important. When we deal oftentimes with those who preach a corrupted gospel, whether they are within mainstream Christianity or they name the name of Jesus in some other type of group or cult. My experience from my own life and from what I've seen in the lives of a lot of other people is we, we often begin to argue about the problem being caused instead of the causative problem. In verse 14, Paul says, When I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? He's going after the key problem. You're not in step with the truth of the gospel because the truth of the gospel is we are one in Christ. And you've been living like one in Christ and now as a hypocrite you're stepping away and saying there's two in Christ at least. You've corrupted the gospel. But what we often too commonly do is we write books We produce pamphlets, we put out blogs, we fight on social media, focusing primarily on the fruit of the problem. And from this, both sides expend energy creating and enforcing rules to prevent the behavior caused by the problem instead of eradicating the underlying problem. That's how we end up in the wrong place. How are we different from the Roman Catholics? And so it becomes an obsession to prove how we're different, although it's not bad to know that and it's not bad to discuss that with someone because those questions are going to arise. But we never get to the underlying issue. You're crucifying Jesus again. It's not the Gospel. When I stand at a Roman Catholic funeral as I did, and the priest holds up a wafer and says, Behold the Lamb of God. It's not a time to argue about communion process. It is a time to say, That's a cracker. The Gospel is that Jesus died and was buried and rose again. We don't need to break any crackers anymore. It is not the blood of Christ that we drink. And let's stop arguing about whether He's in or under or with or, and start talking about what Jesus' finished work accomplished on the cross so that when I come to the table, 
I stand justified before Him. That's where we've got to go. We're fighting over the fruits. Luther and Calvin were fighting over the fruits. In, with, under, actually. And we're still doing it today. Now, I might not be able to do certain things with people who doctrinally disagree with me. My point is not that I'm for ecumenism, where we all just come together and we ignore important things. My point is that when we get into the discussions, the most primary foundational thing that we should be talking about is the gospel. When nobody wants to hear about the gospel, well, surprise. Let's all be shocked that people don't want to hear about the gospel. What is the power of God unto salvation? Isn't it? Well, I can, I can have the discussions here with people. Yeah, and that's all you have oftentimes. You can't reason people into the kingdom. You have to get to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the pure gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's what the Holy Spirit uses to save the souls of men. Next week we'll look at Paul's argument as it follows in these verses, in this chapter. But if we were to summarize the argument that he puts forward in the following verses, it's this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone. Paul's response to a corrupted gospel was not a focus on the fruit of the problem, but rather a proclamation of the pure gospel. I'm out of time, I believe. I still have a whole bunch more here. Let me say these two things fast. First, a couple things in relation to to this as I've thought about it beyond the examples of Paul. I don't think we should be surprised if shepherds, even shepherds who have faithfully proclaimed the truth, begin to preach or, or practice error. It should not surprise us. This is Peter being confronted by Paul. This is Barnabas off away from the Gospel. Folks, if Peter and Barnabas can get messed up in relation to the Gospel, any of us can get messed up in relation to the Gospel, including yours truly. I have been messed up. I spent much of my life messed up in relation to the Gospel. Did people come to know Christ? Yes, they did. 
Did they hear a pure gospel? No, they did not. God uses people in spite of themselves. And I'm thankful for that. Never forget that men at their best are only men at best. It's all we are. And, and we as elders, as shepherds, battle with sin, with fear, with covetousness, with self-reliance, with anger, with discontentment, with pride. I don't know about the rest of the guys, but I do. And I'll just say this. Because of our sin nature, it's a wonder that any of us remain faithful. It's just the truth of it. So pray for us. Pray hard for us. Your shepherds need the gospel. And you need the gospel. The only way that God's people will ever live like Jesus is if we are rooted in the gospel. And when we begin to corrupt the gospel, we begin to see ourselves as better than we are or as better than others. We forget the depths of our sinfulness and depravity. We begin to believe that what we do apart from the righteousness of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit makes God love us more. We begin to believe that we deserve better than we have. And when the sovereignty of God leads us to dark places in life, if we lose sight of the Gospel if we begin to believe a corrupted gospel, if we begin to believe Jesus plus, we will also begin to believe that our loving Father has abandoned us in those dark places, that He doesn't love us anymore or He's getting us for our sin. Discouragement will start to set in. Our failures will condemn us. And after a time, we will go to where we, as Alyssa says, fake it till we make it. Going through the religious motions of church life, weighed down by our hypocrisy, we need as believers to remember, hear, and believe the pure gospel. Not Jesus plus. You know, this might describe you today, and if it does, I would encourage you to spend some time this week, this coming week, in verses 15 to 21. Just read it and reread it, asking God to open your eyes to the simplicity of the pure gospel as Paul preaches it. Maybe spend some time in the gospel of John, but ask our Father to teach you of Jesus, to remind you of all that Jesus accomplished on your behalf in his death, burial, and resurrection, and ask God to bring you back to the simple, pure gospel of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your patience with us, for your kindness to us, for your mercy that is new every morning. I think of Paul's words 
in 1 Corinthians, the gospel I preach to you, that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. And while there is much that surrounds that and many theological debates, practically that issue from that, Help us to never forget that the only way a human being stands accepted before you, the only way a human being is right with you, is not by works of righteousness that we have done, but in the fact that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and He rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Father, I praise You that we were able to stand before You loved and accepted and welcomed because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Through the initiative of Your grace, producing faith in our hearts, to trust in the blood of Jesus alone for salvation. God, bring our minds back to that. Thank You for this body. I thank You for their love of the Gospel. I thank You for their love of one another. God, protect us. That unity sometimes seems so fragile. Protect us from erring, from walking away from the Gospel, from dividing over the things that are not true. Cause us to love You more. Cause our faith to grow. And cause us to love one another more so that all may know that we are Your disciples. In Your Son's name, Amen.